All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for affording us this magnificent opportunity to study your word, the Logos, the very light of men, the mind of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you so very much for loving us and revealing your unerring grace toward us, the undeserving. We pray that our hearts remain humble and open to this morning's encouragement. For as your precious word states, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. We pray also, Father, that those not with us this morning understand your will regarding their service rendered to you through their attendance. We ask that you bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls and may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit we do pray. Amen. Again, this morning's message is consistent with the previous 73 parts of the gospel, salvation and sanctification. Uh, As I mentioned on Thursday, I don't want you to forget the big picture in our curriculum. Uh, We are part 74 now of what? What's he been trying to say? And really, uh, so much of probably the latter half of that 73 course course of study has been studying out these two perspectives, salvation and uh, sanctification perspectives. Uh, The long and short of it is is that we do, through reading the Bible, understand certain tenses of salvation. We know that He saved us, we know that He saves us daily, and we know that He saves us ultimately from sin, from the very presence of sin. So that's the sort of tenses that we've studied out in Scripture But he keeps telling us, elevate your thinking. Keep the big picture in mind. Why? Because what he really wants you to do as he sanctifies you is understand that he wants you to have more of his viewpoint on all of this. And that gives you a certain sense of assurance, which, by the way, Hebrews 11.1 is faith. The assurance of things hoped for, right? The conviction of things not seen. So as he's building this faith in you, you begin taking on his perspective, which really just builds you up over time. So that's salvation perspectives. That was sort of big picture ticket item number one. But we've also been on sanctification perspectives now. uh, Arguably, I haven't checked it out or done the math, but probably longer than we spent on even salvation perspectives. And we've chosen to sort of call out the sanctification perspectives through three phases. They correlate directly, you know, positional, experiential, and ultimate sanctification. But again, the whole idea there, again, is to get you thinking like God. Why? Because that's what's going to increase your faith. Understanding that from God's perspective, since He's not bound by the construct of time, these things are done. They're foregone conclusions. If you're saved, you've already been sanctified. God's not bound by time. With all that said, this past week we contemplated the following. This came up on Tuesday and it came up on Thursday as well. And it's a good way to get us situated even this morning. 
Do you ever wonder at someone else's faith? That's an interesting question to get you thinking. I love when the Spirit gets all Socratic on us, you know, asking us questions that lead us to unavoidable exercises, you know, uh, in our own, uh, our own walks. Do you ever wonder at someone else's faith? The, the encouragement we received from the Spirit on this topic was this up here on the board, and if you were listening in on Thursday, you know uh, what this is referring to. Sometimes others hear things we cannot hear and or see things we cannot see or feel or smell or, you know, whatever analog sense uh, might be in view. Uh, sometimes people just have the faith to hear things or to see things a certain way, and we can't. But here's what the Spirit left us with. Uh, the flesh would be upset with that. Hey, why didn't God give me that kind of faith? Well, the Scripture says God gives each a measure of faith. Why didn't He give me that faith to see or to hear or to what have you? But that's the flesh doing its thing again, ruining something beautiful again, because that's what it's good at. We shouldn't be discouraged by this since God is the one who designed it that way. He designed some to be ears in the body, some to be eyes in the body, some to be arms and legs, or what have you, in the body. If anything, then, since God designed it, then it's perfect. Every perfect gift is from above, right? We ought to be encouraged. Knowing that some actually have faith, say, to fill a gap. Some have faith to fill a different gap. Some have faith to hear. Some have faith to see, etc. We ought to be encouraged that God pulls all these things together perfectly within the body to fulfill His mission here on earth. And so goes the analogy in 1 Corinthians 12. I would encourage all of you to read that in its entirety. But let's just read what we read on Thursday. Go to 1 Corinthians 12, 17. And this again is relative to the body of Christ. The context is skewed towards spiritual gifts, but the baseline principles are the same. If you're actually a believer, you're a member of the body, the bride of Christ, and you too have been made something special. I remember teaching um, probably four or five years ago now, uh, every time I have to teach on the spiritual gifts in the church, I always bring up that sort of uh, quip that uh, I like to say. It's not, it's not um, what you call your gift. It's whether you accept your calling. Who cares if you're a this or a that or, you know, what have you? Everybody, I believe, is different. I think it's impossible for everyone to share the exact same gift. You might say, oh, well, there's pastors. Yeah, there are, but not every pastor is doing what I'm doing this morning. Some of them are home writing. They don't have a church on a hill. They're shepherding another way. They're using that spiritual gift another way. You understand? It's not always the same gift. You could be an evangelist, and maybe you're out in the mission field, but maybe you're down in, I don't know, Louisiana, handing out tracts and talking to people, or you know, you got a megaphone on the corner. I don't know. But if you're listening to the Spirit, you realize that you've been wonderfully, uniquely made. So many of us need to stop trying to be like others. 1 Corinthians 12, 17 if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? 
But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members but one body, and the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. All of this has been meant to reinforce one basic provision in the church, the body of Christ. That is namely the local assembly and its value in our lives. At least as of late, why has he been bringing up 1 Corinthians 12? To build up, to reinforce, to revisit the value of the local assembly. DJ and I were talking before class, and I see it. People are playing all kinds of games out there, playing all, stating all kinds of reasons or scripture even out of context as to why they aren't gathering together, why they aren't taking advantage of a local assembly like this one. All kinds of games people are playing. And they use you know, catchphrases like, this is my family, this family, this kind of thing. And it's disgusting. It's all just an excuse. The simple fact that those are people who don't care about other people, by the way. The simple fact is we do need each other. We do need each other. 1 Corinthians 12, 11, But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. So, even your attendance at church is a gift. If you're here this morning, thank you. I'm saying that as Edward Joseph Collins. Thank you. As a man, thank you for showing up. It's always an interesting walk from my office in the back to the pulpit up front. Very interesting. Who's here? Who's not here? Why not? But I just saw them yesterday. It seemed well. Where are they? Don't know. So if you're here this morning, thank you. Truly. On the topic of faith, we accept things our flesh cannot understand. You might say, even on that topic, I don't understand that. Well, you're lacking some faith somewhere along the line. Because it's on faith that we accept things our flesh cannot understand. However, what our flesh does in its arrogance is what even unbelievers can do. It rationalizes things out. Reason upon reason why we might not be walking by the Spirit. We know in Galatians 5 it says, Walk by the Spirit, you shall not carry out the desires of the flesh. Because they war against each other. Paul was teaching to believers. But the flesh steps in, always. Always wants to step in. Rationalize something as simple as the thing on the board. Ah, nobody's going to miss me. Yes, we will. Yes, we will. It's true. Raise your hand if you're not encouraged by seeing you all, each other, here this morning. Of course you're encouraged. Of course you're encouraged. You know you're not alone in this ridiculous sewer pipe we call the world. How about if I just decided, as frequently as the average congregant decided, I'm just not going to do my job in the body. 
So maybe you show up on a Sunday and you're like, hey, where's Pastor Ed? He had all the things to do. He don't need to answer to you. So you say, oh, that's weird. I'll just, I, maybe I'll just go Tuesday. Hey, where's Pastor Ed? He sends his love. Miss you, smiley face, heart. <laughs> See me on Facebook. What would be the problem? Oh, all of a sudden, if I did that on Thursday too, that would be it. Wait a minute, this guy's not on vacation. He's got the treasure up there asking for money. Where's this guy? Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Whoa, wait. Isn't there like a log in your own eye? And you're looking at the speck in mine? People are funny animals. But that's what the flesh does. It rationalizes ridiculousness. Reason upon reason why we might not be walking by the Spirit. However, the unavoidable issue is that whenever we read Scripture, we must, if you're honest, we must reconcile what we find in our souls. We must reconcile it. In other words, every last bit of Scripture has a reason that it's there. And if two Scriptures don't seem to fit, something's wrong in your soul because God didn't screw up when He inspired the canon. But it would be too much work. Okay, well, then what? As compared to what? Playing PlayStation 4 for six hours straight? Call of Duty? What? What's it too much work to do what? Oh, I have a full schedule. I'm, you know, so-and-so. I have responsibilities at work. Well, who took on those responsibilities? That's another game people play. But I won't digress, because then I'll get all fired up. So reason upon reason why we might not be walking by the Spirit. However, the unavoidable issue is that whenever we read Scripture, we must reconcile what we find in our own souls. For example, why are we not walking the way the Bible says we ought to walk? Isn't that like 101? Why am I not doing it? It's there in the Scripture. I mean, I read it. Well, what's the problem? Why are we merely... James 1.22, hearers who delude themselves. We must learn to stop and ask why. That's a very scary question for some people. I don't want to stop because if I stop, I'm going to have to look in the mirror. Yep. But that's what he's saying. Stop and ask why. Go to Colossians 1.9. The issue the Spirit's been pointing out is simple. You want to know why you're not walking? Faith. That's the reason. It's faith. Faith. My friends, faith. God gives grace to the humble. Faith is a grace gift. Colossians 1.9 For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, We have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience 
joyously giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. That's sanctification 101. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So again, the point on the board up here. Why? The answer to the question, why am I not walking in a way that I know is pleasing to God, is simple. It's a lack of faith. And if we just do the math, I mean, what's the reason why we don't have faith? God gives grace to who? The humble. Faith is a grace gift. So the reason you don't have faith is because you're not humble. The remedy is oh so simple. Faith comes from hearing, Romans 10.17, and God gives grace to the humble, James 4.6. It's not an intellectual or doctrinal issue, my friends. It's a spiritual humility one. It's not an intellectual issue. You're not, you don't lack faith because you're not that smart. You don't lack faith because you can't memorize four, five, six-syllable hyphenated theological terms. That has really very little to do with faith. There's nowhere in Scripture that says that. If anything, Paul said, I don't even come to you with superiority of wisdom or speech. I just want to know, is Christ crucified? That's all I want to know. Do you have that in your heart? But see, the flesh, we're going to get into this, the flesh just hijacks everything good. Again, the Spirit's been driving a single point home for some time now. As we continue studying experiential sanctification, do not forget the big picture that we started off with this morning because we're still on experiential sanctification issues. So the Spirit's been driving this single point home for some time. And rather than me summarizing this single point, why not let Scripture do that for us? That way there you can't look at me and say, well, that's just his opinion. Go to Hebrews 11.6. Hebrews 11.6. We know what Hebrews 11.1 says. That's the, you know, the brief sort of description for faith. Hebrews 11 is often called the Hall of Fame of Faith because it lists all kinds of uh, faithful individuals from Scripture. But look at Hebrews 11.6. Here's the single point. And, and the question still lingers in the air. Why? And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. How do you get faith? Humility. Hmm. So if you're arrogant, it's impossible to please Him because you won't get faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Is that difficult, my friends? No. Do you have to be a Ph.D. in theology to understand that statement? No, you do not. It's very simple. Without faith, you don't please God. And you say, great, well, give me faith. Well, then be humble and he'll give it to you. But, oh, darn it. Let me give you a McDonald on this. 
on Hebrews 11.6, no amount of good works can compensate for lack of faith. After all is said and done, when a man refuses to believe God, he is calling him a liar. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar. That's 1 John 5.10. And how can God be pleased by people who call him a liar? See, Scripture's easy, isn't it? It's very simple. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar. Either you think God's telling the truth or you think he's a liar. So this makes total sense. And I really appreciate how simply he puts faith in its rightful place in our perspectives up here on the board. Same guy. Faith is the only thing that gives God his proper place and puts man in his place too. Hmm. Faith is the only thing that gives God his proper place and puts man in his place too. Think about that. A little more practically stated from Macintosh up here on the board, same verse and view. Faith glorifies God exceedingly because it proves that we have more confidence in his eyesight than our own. Faith glorifies God exceedingly because it proves that we have more confidence in His eyesight than our own. God's never confused, in other words. So it's very true. Whose eyesight, whose viewpoint do you want? One last quote from MacDonald on this wonderful verse. Faith not only believes that God exists, but it also trusts Him to reward those who diligently seek Him. There is nothing about God that makes it impossible for men to believe. The difficulty is with the human will. God has made things very easy for us. Then what's the problem? Well, only you can look in the mirror and say, what is my problem? Why do I lack faith? Where is my arrogance coming from? You know where it comes from, but where is it like, how does it got its grip on me? What am I doing? What am I clinging to? Again, this is the point that the Spirit's been getting at lately. And as always, anytime He raises an issue in our souls, He takes us to the only ointment, the only eyesalve that can heal us, which is the Word of God. That's what Scripture says. You notice I'm not saying anything. I'm not even going two steps without Scripture right there to substantiate the things that are coming from the pulpit. Revelation 3.18, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and I sob to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Again, the scripture that has helped us here, you still Hebrews 11.6, right? Let's read it. And what? Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. That's very powerful. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. You have to believe that stuff, folks. You have to be humble. You have to accept that as truth. So that addresses the big sort of practical question regarding experiential sanctification up here on the board. Why? Why? 
What we just saw in Hebrews 11.6, without faith it's impossible to please Him. Without faith, then, it's impossible to walk by the Spirit. There's your answer. It's right in Scripture. It's faith. The answer to the question, why am I not walking in a way that I know is pleasing to God, is simple. It's a lack of faith. The remedy is oh so simple. Faith comes from hearing, Romans 10, 17, and God gives grace to the humble, James 4, 6. It's not an intellectual, doctrinal issue. It's a spiritual humility one. So let's just take this from a different angle for a moment for the sake of covering all bases so we know what the Spirit's saying directly, but what about all the other indirect routes that people like to use and they come from different angles and their their flesh is trying to justify some ridiculousness in their lives. So maybe this will help you out in that area for the sake of covering those bases. Pretend for a moment that the point on the board is wrong. And intellectualism is actually the pathway to walking by the Spirit. Then how could anyone, without the intellectual abilities of a so-called, quote, mature believer, ever please God by doing the right things? In other words, if you didn't have the intellectual abilities, how could you ever please God if it were all about intellect? They couldn't. They couldn't. And oh, by the way, since we must reconcile all Scripture, then we must, in light of such a gross misrepresentation of Christ, consider the following verse. Go to Luke 2.52. If we're going to take that tact, again, oh, I don't think that's true. I don't believe that. I think it is an intellectual issue. <clears throat> and that only the quote-unquote spiritually mature intellect actually has faith enough to what? Find deliverance in this world? How about Luke 2.52 then? Let's reconcile this then. How about this? And Jesus, this is Jesus now. You know him, right? Not Jesus from the hood. This is Jesus. Okay? Jesus kept increasing. That's an activity. He went from point A to point B. That means he was less intelligent and he became more intelligent. He was less wise and he became more wise. But who on earth is going to stake a claim that even say 12-year-old Jesus was less faithful because he was less, quote, intelligent than they are right now. Anybody want to take a stab at that? I wouldn't. So we have to reconcile it then, don't we? The author and perfecter of our faith kept increasing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. That means he learned. But yet, he had perfect faith. If Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, Hebrews 12, 2, the spotless lamb, 1 Peter 1, 19, the high priest who never sinned, Hebrews 4, 15, that guy, if even he had to increase in wisdom, then it is implied that he didn't have the same intellect before the cross 
as he did while hanging on it. Okay. You agree with that? Okay. If all of this is true, and it is, then the only way to reconcile it is to throw out any notion that intellect is the key to the spiritual life. It isn't. It's not. How could it be? Do you have to learn? Sure. But God gives, a fa- God gives faith to who He wants to give faith to. Am I going to say to one person, because you've memorized the whole of Romans, you have more faith than the person who couldn't memorize Romans 1.1 because they don't have the intellect to do it? Am I going to say that? I'm never going to say it. So there goes that whole argument. You have to throw it out, my friends. God gives faith to the humble. Consider the very first concept of the God-man given to us in Scripture. Consider that. Consider the God-man, the perfect one, the author and perfecter of our faith. What's really the first thing that he ever did? And it's not the nativity scene. It's much bigger than that. And it's very important for us to note when we consider how Jesus Christ went about becoming our prototype. Go to Philippians 2.6. Philippians 2.6. So, we can throw out intellectualism as the so-called pathway to spiritual maturity. Maybe we look at Jesus Christ, our prototype. Well, what's the first thing he had to do? Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he what? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the first sort of activity that we hear about Regarding the God-man, Jesus Christ, our prototype, was that he humbled himself. And none of you have this problem of humbling yourselves from being God. But he did. Up here on the board, you know, I sat there when I was writing my notes yesterday, and I thought about that. I said, he humbled himself. And I was blown away. I said, how can I possibly teach that? How do I teach that? I have no idea. I mean, I'm doing, doing, I'll give you something to think about, but what does that mean to you? I mean, I don't know. I'm not, I was, I've never been God, so I don't know what it means to become a man coming out of heaven. I, I, all I know is that it's a lot bigger humility than I have to deal with, that I might struggle with as a human being. It's impossible to fully understand the magnitude of this, truly. Yet its place in Scripture is reserved for all believers to absorb, to take on as the first step in walking by faith. He was the author and perfecter of our faith. He did it perfectly. The blameless, spotless lamb. And the first thing he did as he entered into that walk was what? He humbled himself. What do you see then? What 
is lurking in your own life? Why are you not walking the way that He wants you to walk? Hmm. Big H. Next letter, U. Whenever we see humility, do this as an exercise. Whenever we see humility in the Bible, we see a corresponding faith. And vice versa. Whenever we see humility in the Bible, we see a corresponding faith. Humility abides in the light. Arrogance shuns it. Overcoming darkness. Jesus overcame darkness by abiding in the light exclusively. That's different than the person who splits their time, energy, attention between wrestling with darkness and abiding in the light. Faith, then, implies letting go. You're never going to get to where you, I hope, want to be as a believer if you never let go. If faith implies letting go, then its precursor, humility, implies the same. In other words, it's humility that we let go. It's in humility that we say, it's up to you, Lord. Arrogance says, no, I'll take it from here. You know, Humility says, I'll let go. An arrogant person clings to things of old, the vestiges of sin in the old self. Arrogance always stands opposed to truth. But as Romans 6 states, for true believers in the faith, sin is dead to us. Go to Romans 6, 5. Romans 6, 5. So, I know for me and for many of you that have intimated the same to me over the years, so much of this work that he's been doing in this congregation has been encouraging each of us to let go. To let go. Don't just show up to church. Let go. Take what he's saying to you. Romans 6, 5. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. So what's the problem then? Since arrogance always stands opposed to truth, we rightly conclude that it also always leads to the opposite of freedom, which is bondage. Solomon concludes his wisdom book, Ecclesiastes, wonderful read, short read. Wonderful, though, nice, wonderful reminder if you ever have, I don't know, 20 minutes maybe, half an hour, I don't know how long, it depends on how fast you read. And he gives us some sound advice on humility. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 to 14. This is the very end of the book itself. He says, and this is the Amplified, When all has been heard, the end of the matter is, Fear God. Worship Him with awe-filled reverence, knowing that He is Almighty God, and keep His commandments. For this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, every hidden and secret thing, 
whether it is good or evil. In other words, like we started off this morning, you want his viewpoint, not the world's viewpoint. Look at, think about what's the world saying is good nowadays. It's good that what? Perverts are allowed into opposite bathrooms? As long as they say they're, what, transgender or something, whacked out? What, what's good nowadays? What's good? People are celebrating this kind of thing. What's good? What's the world calling good? And then how does that compare to God? So you want to share in his viewpoint, folks. I was reflecting on all of this as your shepherd. You know, why? I asked why. What, where? You know, I had a kind of a heart-wrenching conversation with DJ before class. Not always the best timing, but I do think about people that sort of fade. You know, and one of the in, whether you like to hear it or not, one of the indicators of a fading congregation is the financial front. Because people that are properly motivated will always give, and there won't be any financial problems. So what's going on? Seriously, what's going on? So I was thinking about that. What is going on? Well, it doesn't take long. I think one of the issues today is that everyone's bored. Everyone's so used to being passively entertained that they expect God to do the same. Or even worse, they expect life to be this whirlwind of lights and sounds and excitement to the senses. But that's just the natural expectation of the soul that has been preconditioned by the kingdom of darkness through TV, movies, literature, video games, smartphones, tablets, etc., etc., etc. What I believe the Spirit's saying to all of you today is the same thing He's been beating into my own head. Stop! Stop! Smell the roses. Appreciate what you've been giving, given starting with today. You didn't have to wake up. There are people, listen to my voice, that are sitting in the midst of you right now that it was a struggle to get here for a multitude of reasons. A struggle. And they're here and other people aren't. Why? Because too many people are not stopping and appreciating all that he's done. They're still chasing some, what, rabbit? So stop, smell the roses, appreciate what you've been given, starting with today. And while you're at it, encourage others to do the same. Why? Because that's what's pleasing to God. Hebrews 3.13 in the Amplified. But continually encourage one another every day, as long as it is called today. And there is an opportunity, so that none of you will be hardened into settled rebellion by the deceitfulness of sin, its cleverness, delusive glamour, and sophistication. That literally describes our world. Cleverness, delusive glamour, and sophistication. I can't tell you how many times now in my career behind a pulpit I've been called a narrow-minded fool. 
Why? Why? Because I teach the Word of God? That makes me narrow-minded? I'm narrow-minded? Seriously? I don't think so. I mean, I believe in God. I believe what God has to say in Scripture. If that makes me narrow-minded by the world's definition, if I'm not clever or glamorous or sophisticated by the world's definition, then thank you, world, because that's a compliment to me. Because your cleverness, your sophistication is gross. It's grotesque. Bunch of deceived fools. But I'm the narrow-minded one. Whatever. In other words, since God God saw fit to raise you out of bed this morning, why not try on this simple perspective? Overcoming darkness with faith and grace orientation. God shows us grace every day by simply waking us up and giving us the breath of life. That is the baseline grace He's given even the unbelievers through patience. That is a test in and of itself. In other words, did you, did you get up and say, Darn it, honey! I told you we were out of K-cups for the Keurig! You know, last week it was the double cream. This week it's no cups. How do I live with you? How do I live this life? (laughs) Meanwhile, some little child, some innocent child, just starved to death on the other side of the planet. Not, oh, I'm starving. You're not starving, pudgy. (laughs) You got five more minutes to wait at the McDonald's line. You're not starving. The kid who just died starved. Talk to them about starving. You're not out of money. You can't support the church. You're not out of money. Someone on the other side of the planet who can't feed their family for real, not steak tips, for real, they don't have money to support a local assembly. You see? Anyway. If you're here, you ought to be grateful. That's the point. Some of you might be secretly murmuring, and I know you do. I can see it in some of your eyes. But you don't know how difficult my life is nowadays. I'm being attacked from every side. So? Do you think you're alone? Do you think you're alone in your little ailment? Your little problem? Do you think you're alone? Seriously? Is this is what this has come to? You're all alone? How about some scripture to give you a little attitude adjustment? Go to 1 Peter 5 9. 1 Peter 5 9. How about that? How about we just look at scripture? What does scripture have to say? I don't know. It says something about faith. How about a little attitude adjustment then? But resist him. What? Firm in your what? Faith. Knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Oh. I mean, I'm not the only one with uh, this problem? No. No. So get over yourself. 
Seriously, get over yourself. Think you're the only person who's suffering the way you're suffering? Get over yourself. The scripture itself says you're not alone in that suffering. Verse 10, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I don't believe that. Well, that's your problem. That's why you can't stand firm in your faith. That's why you're ignorant of the simple fact that others are dealing with the same things you're dealing with. There are like, what, six, between six and seven billion people on this planet now. A good portion of them are Christian. And if that scripture doesn't do it, maybe some, quote, pick up your skirt a little scripture will help you with an attitude adjustment. Go to Acts 5.41. Acts, oh, actually, I'll get it on the board for you. Forget that. Just sit back and lap this one up. Acts 5.41-42. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. See, that's the problem. Most believers nowadays are not even getting this kind of persecution. It's usually self-inflicted. Why are you so upset about the K-cup? Because that's my habit. So? What's that got to do with the gospel? Nothing. Are you out there getting persecuted for spreading the gospel? Most of you have to say no. Most of the things you're complaining about have nothing to do with the gospel, except the gospel of you. The good news, I am here, I have arrived. Oh, look at me, behold. Huh? Behold, I even come with a shiny new Starbucks cup. Look at this thing. It's $27 on sale at Starbucks. I, and I bought a scone, but whatever. You know, I almost broke a tooth on it. But look at this cup. Look at the beauty of it. Woo! Ain't I special? The gospel of me. Others? You mean there are other people? You mean I shouldn't be complaining about running out of whatever? I, I shouldn't have had one little even twinge of discomfort when the treasurer came up here? No, you shouldn't have. You should have said, oh, well, I didn't know. I need to give more. I need to do more. But how am I going to do that thing? I got to, you know, I got, I got to, I got this, and I got my seventy-two thousand dollar a month mortgage, and I got my sixty thousand dollar a month car payment. I'm being ridiculous, so nobody gets. Oh, you're talking about me because I get that. Oh, you are you talking about me again? I'm not talking about you, you arrogant person. <laughs> These are all principles, and I had this discussion with Tammy actually the other day. Listen. I don't get, I, I very rarely get upset, so please stop doing this to me, with the individual. Well, if I get upset and I'm in your grill, so to speak, I'm upset with what I see in you. I'm upset with the fact that evil resides in you somehow, some way. I don't want it there. So I'll fight tooth and nail with that thing, even though it's in you. And the mistake people typically make, even like a morning like this, is they take it personal. I'm not personal. I don't know what's going on in your life. I know enough to be like, oh, I definitely don't want to know anymore. 
in your life. Fair, is that fair? Honest to goodness, that's true. So never take it personal. It's not me. It's not Pastor Red and you. This isn't some kind of contention between a man and you. This is truth getting upset about the disgustingness that abides in all of us. It's about a conflict that's been going on since the beginning of mankind, since the fall in the garden. That's what I'm mad about. That's what I get indignant about. So stop making it about me. As always, your deliverance today is often simply a matter of a change of perspective up here on the board relative to Acts 5, 41 and 42. Those who actually rejoiced in the ability to suffer for Christ's sake. Up here on the board, faith's perspective, being persecuted for the name of Christ is a reason for rejoicing. Acts 5.41. This is true wisdom. If faith is the stepping out, then wisdom is the destination. There's a reason (coughs) I use the term experiential when referring to progressive sanctification. It's because the root word of experiential is what? Experience. In other words, you experience life. So life is meant to be experienced, my friends. Wisdom is gained through experience, not merely going to church. Mission implies the field, a.k.a. life. Consider our great co-mission, joint mission with God. On Thursday, we considered the analogy to the National War College, where colonels in the armed services go to be groomed for staff and general positions. And we likened this to the local assembly, this being your war college. This is like going to war college for you. The war is out there, right? But God, the Holy Spirit, plucks us out of the front lines and takes us to a church so we can learn more about the strategies of, the, of Satan in the kingdom of darkness, of our enemies even, even the flesh. It's not that more faith has to be understood because that's a gift. It's not that we need to learn more about what Jesus did because we're all saved. Right? We've got to get that right. But how, is, how are these baseline core doctrines being attacked? We may not, quote-unquote, naturally understand all the different ways. At the end of the day, like the latest blog titled MASH, describes, while coming to church is important, it's not the end goal. It's merely your preparatory training. A lot of people, that I believe is even a a shift in perspective. They say, oh, I'm living the spiritual life. I go to church faithfully. Good for you. That really is a good thing. But this this is not the front lines. This is where you go to get prepped. Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. To go out, to serve on the front lines. This is not being spiritual, so to speak. This is not the great commission. This is how you get prepared to go out and complete the commission. It's like anything. Preparing for experience. For example, sanctification. There's simply no substitute for experience. No matter how intelligent a person may be, their wares must be put to the test in order to precipitate true wisdom. As we learned earlier, intellect is not the issue in walking in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord God. Faith is. 
You can be the smartest person. Stephen Hawking, as far as I know, Bill Gates, as far as I know, these are brilliant men. I believe they're both atheists. So intellect has nothing to do. Richard Dawkins, same thing. These guys are very intelligent, but they're literally atheists. So intellect has nothing to do. And some of these guys, like Dawkins, might even bury some of you in Scripture. Because he's done his homework as our enemy. As Sun Tzu would say, know your enemy. So that's why we come to the war college, to know our enemies, to figure out what's the strategy. So concentrate. If you're anything like me, then you know this is a real struggle. And I was reflecting uh, with Scott the other day. I was talking about the lessons with, with him, and I left him with some, some things to ponder. It was bi-directional, of course, but this is what I left him, as a shepherd even, some things to ponder. I asked him to reconcile two basic truths in the Bible. First, the gospel is simple and central to the Bible. Simple and central. Second, then why does man make things so complicated, given the simplicity of the gospel? Seriously, reconcile those two things. If the gospel is simple and central, then why in the world is it, why is this, why is this thing called the spiritual life, why does it seem so complicated to everybody? Why is everybody overcomplicating things? So my food for thought to him was as follows. Creature credit antagonizes sanctification. In, every, in any and every circumstance in life, the flesh will always seek a superior position to its peers. Always. It's what it does. Always. Walking into church even. <laughs> I have the best suit on. I have the nicest tie. Didn't know Brian was going to coordinate with me, but everybody can look at Brian. Had to steal my thunder, take my colors. I'm better than you. Didn't you know that? Better than you. Someday you'll be spiritually giant like me with my tremendously high IQ and my wonderful vocabulary. Someday if you stick with it, you too can be like this moron. people you know the funny thing is that's what the flesh would prefer i'd say because what i just presented to the flesh was something to chase and that's what the flesh likes because the flesh will look around and go i think i'm next in line brian's like i I even have the colors i'm right there with him i'm totally second best in this church right i even have a cute little kid oh look at my baby any cute i'll use him Use him. People do it all the time. Look at my kid. Shut up with the kid already. How about you? Anyways, I'm digressing slightly. Slightly. In any and every circumstance in life, the flesh will always seek a superior position to its peers. You need to let that sink in. That's why the spiritual life seems complicated. Because of that. God didn't make it complicated. God's not a God of confusion, right? God's not a liar, right? 
In any and every circumstance in life, the flesh will always seek a superior position to its peers. Everything's a competition, whether it's verbalized or not. That same mentality is brought into the faith even. This is the reason for the artificial complexity. Sanctification is not a competition, my friends. It's not a race. That's not the race Paul was talking about. It's not a race against each other. Everything. This was the problem. This is the problem. Imagine just, all right, so if you don't believe that, straight up in your face. Imagine for a moment if once we were saved, we no longer had these fleshly impulses or lusts. Think of the millennium, where there's going to be people with resurrection bodies, right? Think of that. Those people are not going to be competing. You know what they're going to be doing? Serving Christ. There's not going to be any problems. If you're the guy who's got the broom and your best friend next door has got some high, high highfalutin position in his government, or however it looks, you know what I'm saying, right? You're not going to have a problem with it. You're like, cool, thanks for doing your job. Hey, thanks for doing your job. Jesus rocks, right? Jesus rocks. Then you're going to have the fleshly ones who are in there as well. You're like Rocky Balboa, right? Right? That's the flesh. That's the flesh. So just imagine for a moment, right now, if once we were saved, we no longer had these fleshly impulses or lusts, wouldn't the spiritual life be mighty, simple, and pleasant? Absolutely. So we can't blame God. Man is the reason the spiritual life seems complicated at times. The purpose of artificial complexity. Man wants sanctification to be complex since it affords the flesh a way to stratify itself. That's creature credit in a nutshell. A person who has a very strong flesh and say requisite gifts to always end up at the top, you know, like intellectual people or whatever, wants complexity, wants the spiritual life, wants those huge words, wants man-made complexity even in a church. Why? Because that sets up the framework that they can crawl up faster than their neighbor. So man, you want to know why it's complex? You want to know why in your own soul it's been complex all these years? It's because you're arrogant. It's because you clung to something unholy. You clung to complexity or religion, however you'd like to look at it, for a reason to satisfy your own flesh. Otherwise, if you were doing what the Bible says to do, which is go to the Scripture, seek and you shall find, you'd have been delivered a long time ago, just like myself, so I'm not throwing stones. But here we are, and now we're learning the absolute truth, how simple it is, how wonderful the Gospel is, and how everybody in the kingdom of darkness is trying to tear it down and rob you of the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Amen? That's what it's all about. Don't you see it? It's not about being better. It's not about coming to church. I hate when people do that. I see I'm going to attack you. (laughs) Serious. I don't like that at all. My church is better than your crap. 
I hate that stuff. That's what, what do you think Paul wrote? Oh, you say you're from Apollos. You say you're from Paul. God causes all the growth. And he says, you guys are morons for making it complex. So that's the purpose of artificial complexity. Man wants sanctification to be complex since it affords the flesh a way to stratify itself. That's creature credit in a nutshell. Simplicity leaves no room for arrogance to strive. So, for some of you, at some point, if you're humble, God will open your eyes to the simple, freeing truth that's been staring back at you from your Bible since the day you first opened it. Up here on the board, the simplicity of our faith. Look, there's only a small amount of central doctrine in Scripture, the gospel. The rest of it describes accounts of where those core doctrines are either being reaffirmed or defended against attacks. That's true. There's really only a small amount of central doctrine. It's not complicated. God wouldn't have made it complicated because He's not a God of confusion. He wouldn't have made it complicated. Do you understand? You might say, oh, what about all the accounts? What about the accounts of like, you know, Gideon and David and all that? These things were just proof points of people that actually had humility and faith in God. Isn't that the baseline for actually believing the gospel? Do you truly believe that God has saved you? Or did you just have some weird mental assent? Did you just say, honey, Stop it. Okay, I believe, okay? Was that you? Or did you literally say in your heart, somewhere in your spiritual career at the beginning, from faith, I do believe that. I do believe that God can save me and that I need a Savior in the first place. See, Satan doesn't want you to see that, though. He doesn't want you to see it that simply. He really doesn't. The arrogant people in this world will contend that such a statement is an oversimplification, but I respond quite freely and confidently. Go to 2 Corinthians 11.3. 2 Corinthians 11.3. I'll pick a spot to close here. Some might say, oh, that's just too simple. Well... I have to teach what is in the Bible, my friends. And if the Bible says God wants you to keep it simple, God wants you not to be confused, God wants you to be set free because that's what Christ died on the cross to do, to afford to you. 2 Corinthians 11.3 But I'm afraid, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. The whole Bible is about Jesus Christ, my friends. His cross, His gospel. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, you know, like someone, I don't know, maybe he's really complicated. Maybe he's, I don't know, maybe he's not judgmental at all. Maybe he didn't, I don't know, some, some other Jesus that's not actually our Jesus. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit 
which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. What do, you know, we have to make sure that doesn't seep into our souls, that we're not tolerant. And if you've read the book on arrogance, you know that that's one of the chapters is tolerance. If it's confusing, then it's not from God. You don't believe me? Go to 1 Corinthians 14.33. 1 Corinthians 14.33. I'm not saying anything without Scripture, am I? I'm not. If it's confusing, then it's not from God. And we're not talking about the normal, oh, this is the first time I've seen this Scripture, I need to get this straightened. We're not talking about that. That's academic confusion. We're talking about spiritual confusion. Why does this not add up? Something's not right. That's not from God. 1 Corinthians 14.33, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. That's Scripture. You have to reconcile that with all the other Scripture that we've learned just this morning. Not to mention the rest of the Bible. If God's not the God, the, a God of confusion, then, and if you're confused, then what's the problem? You're arrogant. Oh, how dare you say that. Sorry. You're arrogant. Some of you have been confused by certain things over the past year or so, but that's not an issue with what's being taught here. It's an issue with your flesh clinging to religious things you may or may not have been taught even in the past, or possibly even doctrines you've invented all on your own. Now, taking this back and picking a spot to close, up here on the board, why are we still here then? What does a sanctified believer do? If they are being and living righteously by faith, that's Romans 1.17, what might their primary fruit be? And this is what the Spirit keeps coming back to. What is the primary fruit then? Matthew 28.18-20, that's it. Which is the Great Commission. We are here after salvation to spread the gospel. This places special emphasis on getting the gospel right and complete. Honestly, that's about what we're doing. Let's get it right. Let's go to war college and figure out the strategies of our enemies, because that's important too. And the better you get at that, the less you're going to fall into temptation. You see how that correlates to you know, sinning less over time, maybe even? Why? Because you're aware of what's actually going on. Go quickly to 1 Corinthians 2.1. So I cannot emphasize the point on the board. I cannot overemphasize it enough. I believe that's impossible. First Corinthians two one. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So the fact of the matter is, the gospel is simple as Scripture has manifestly, dogmatically shown us over the course of this current series. 
Say it with me. The gospel is simple. I couldn't hear it. Oh, that's cool. That's good. Thanks. Really? You sure? You sure? Does that mean my intellect and my cool suit and all this other stuff that I've spent all my time, you know, whipping up? That's no good? Yeah, it's no good. The gospel is simple. That's why you're here, my friends. You're here to fulfill his will in all of humanity, which is all are saved and come to the knowledge of him. Not the gospel of you. Amen? All right, let me, let me show you a nice video. Thank you.
Father, thank you again for this morning's message, for giving us the breath of life and the vision to understand at least a portion of all that you've chosen to accomplish in us and through us, your elect. Father, our hearts are humbled before you this morning in gratitude for your giving us this wonderful message from the Word, the very bread of life. We pray, Father, that our perspectives continue to be changed and that our sanctification be from you and not from self. We pray for those still struggling with their faith and that we might find the courage at the appropriate time to give them the gospel. And finally, Father, we pray for the ill, for they are many, it seems, that they realize that they've been predestined to suffer for your sake, to bring glory to you. May you bless all traveling from this local assembly. It's in Christ's precious name, by the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.